And when I'm with a patient, my heart and brain, the frequencies synchronize. It's called heart-brain coherence. They go at the same frequency. To do that, I slow down my brain a lot. And then the patient's heart goes at the same frequency as mine. And we think that when that leveling of frequencies happens, that's when information gets passed one person to another. Hello, this is Dr. Deva Nagula. Welcome to From Doctor to Patient, where our goal is to bring you topics of discussion that will educate you on the various healing modalities to help balance the mind, body, and spirit. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of From Doctor to Patient. Today, I have Dr. Jill Blakeway. She's a doctor of acupuncture and Chinese medicine, a licensed and board-certified acupuncturist and clinical herbalist. Jill founded the Unova Center in New York City in 1999 and continues to practice there alongside a team of Chinese medicine practitioners. She's known for her intuitive approach to Chinese medicine and particularly for her skills as an acupuncturist and energy healer. She is also an author of a new book, Energy Medicine, The Science and Mystery of Healing. Jill, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's lovely to to talk to a person that is uh, an expert in acupuncture and Chinese medicine and also energy medicine. Um, it's a field that I'm very interested in as I've been in the last six months or so, I've, I've been drawn to energy medicine more and more. Let's just talk about how you got into the work that you do now and what exactly it is that you do to help heal patients. Well, uh, like a lot of acupuncturists of my generation in the West, I discovered acupuncture when it worked for me. That was a long time ago. That was over 25 years ago. And I became fascinated that it did work, that there was this piece missing from my education that couldn't explain why it worked. And that fascination ended up with me taking a Master of Science in Chinese Medicine and then a doctorate, um, teaching, starting acupuncture um, in hospitals and hospice, and also um, founding Unova in New York City, which is a, 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 we have three clinics in New York City um, uh, practicing Chinese medicine. And I, I fell down a considerable rabbit hole. And one of the things that I realized is that acupuncture is a form of energy medicine and that acupuncturists, particularly here in the United States where we're licensed and we're part of the medical system, have not talked about that very much. We've looked at all the ways we integrate. I was like that. I was part of a hospital study into pain relief in labor and delivery and things like that. Um, and it's interesting to look at acupuncture from a Western mechanistic point of view. But if we're not careful, we lose our Roots, which is that it's an, a little electrical intervention that prompts the body to self-heal. And that is where I ended up. That's awesome. And, and then so was the discovery or the practice of energy medicine, did that come as a result of your practice in acupuncture or did that kind of coincide at the same time? Yes, I began to see the medicine is energetic. And people always ask me, what is energy? Because it can sound quite sort of amorphous as a concept. But the truth is that energy is all the bits of you that aren't tissue and bone and sinew and organ. It is um, uh, your body's intelligence. It's, you know, every single cell in your body knows who it is and where it is and what it's supposed to do. You communicate deeply at a cellular level. Your organs interact with each other. 
remember there are complex feedback systems in the body to keep you in homeostasis and keep bringing you back into balance. And all of those require awareness. And that awareness is a form of intelligence. And that intelligence is what the Chinese called qi. Uh, in India was called prana. In the Judeo-Christian tradition was called the breath of life. In every ancient tradition, there was an understanding that we have a bodily intelligence. We have a life force, that we're not just a machine uh, at all. And I actually also include your thoughts and your feelings and your memories in the part of you that is energetic. I think we pull our memories from an energy field and I think we use our thoughts in a way that affects um, our body's communication systems. And so when you are evaluating a patient and um, they come in with a history and they have some chronic issues, illnesses, as well as some acute things, how do you incorporate the two into your practice to help heal the patient? Well, Chinese medicine naturally takes the holistic view of the body. We make what's called a pattern diagnosis. Um, so the functional medicine doctors actually do something similar now. Um, but this is an ancient form of this. Um, and so no symptom makes sense except in relation to other symptoms. So we're already looking at patterns of disharmony in the body. And those patterns of disharmony about communication. And the longer I've practiced, the more I think that chronic diseases, as opposed to acute trauma, um, is usually usually a and are usually an issue of uh, of poor communication and poor synchronization. You know, overactive immune systems lead to our um, autoimmune diseases that we're seeing more and more of as people's bodies have trouble coming, achieving flexibility and balance against, you know, a background of toxicity. So I already had the tools through Chinese medicine to diagnose somewhat energetically. And I still practice acupuncture in a very energetic form, but I also um, uh, started to realize in my practice that I I had energy coming out of my hands that people could feel and the patients would tell me it helped them and I had all the kind of um, uh, self-doubt that I think anyone responsible would have. I was like, well, what if it's the placebo? What if I have really strong energy coming out of my hands that people can feel and it does absolutely nothing? <laughs> but they're very impressed by it and they heal thanks to their belief in it. Um, so I set off on a journey. Um, HarperCollins very kindly commissioned me to write a book for skeptics as well as people who are interested in energy medicine called Energy Medicine the science and mystery of healing. Uh, and I set off to explain in some ways myself to myself and find out if the energetic effects were measurable. You know, if the effects of an energy healer weren't just subjective, obviously patients say they feel better, but whether there was measurable um, outcomes that we could find. And what did you find? Because this is fascinating because, you know, acupuncture, there's a standard, you know, you have to go through a schooling and you receive a certification. And energy medicine, a lot of it's considered woo-woo and is not really accepted by mainstay folks, especially traditional medicine folks. It's considered woo-woo and just off the charts. I mean, fortunately, a lot of traditional medicine practitioners are starting to accept uh, the benefits of acupuncture and incorporating that, whether they refer their clients out to acupuncturists or taking classes themselves to perform acupuncture. But energy medicine, that is just something that, you know, there's no standard. And so a lot of practitioners can come off and take advantage of clients because there's no certification, there's no standard as what to practice. So number one, how do you differentiate an energy healer that is actually has merit versus someone who is really woo-woo and is just, you know, hocus pocus. And then let's 
get in the conversation about energy medicine of itself and how you use your hands to heal? Well, you, you bring up a very good point. Acupuncturists are licensed, so they're accountable. They go through a very um, a, a similar training, no matter where they train, they pass board exams, and then they can lose their license if they do anything unethical. And those standards of education and ethics, I think, are important. And um, energy medicine is a very, very broad field. And as I, 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 I traveled, I went to Japan for this book, I met some amazing healers. I really did. But I started to think about charlatans. I bumped into the occasional one. And here is what I found. I thought when it came to charlatans, I would find people with absolutely no talent whatsoever doing absolutely nothing and charging a fortune and conning people. I did occasionally come across that, but much less than you would think. But there was another category of practitioner that really alarmed me. And these were people who did have some talent, but were using it to be exploitative and manipulative and have control over people. And I became so concerned about that that I got in touch with a man called Dr. Thomas Guttheil, who is the head of psychiatry and law at Harvard. He's a, he's a forensic psychiatrist, and his specialty is transgressions of the therapeutic relationship. And he gave me some red flags, which I put in the book. But basically, he said, look out for people who are a cult of one. Be wary of anyone who says, only I can help you. Um, because that's never true as far as, you know, we put our heads together, Dr. Guttel and I, and we just couldn't think of a time where that would ever be true, you know? And um, anyone who's asking you for more than their fee, Dr. Guttel said to me, the only thing you should get from a treatment is your fee and the satisfaction of having done a good job, you know? So anyone who's asking you for more and more money <laughs> in order to do things that, you know, outside of their fee, anyone who's manipulating you um, sexually, obviously, but Dr. Guttel had all sorts of horror stories of people, you know, cleaning their practitioner's office, <laughs> picking up their dry cleaning. Um, um, uh, sex is obviously a big um, area where there's exploitation, but there's also exploitation for social contacts and career advancement. So having thought about this, I thought, well, the best thing to do is actually teach everyone how to be their own healer. Because the truth is, there are no special healers. The longer I traveled and investigated my own talent, the more I realized I wasn't remotely special, <laughs> not even slightly. Um, and if I can do it, anyone can do it. So I put lessons at the end of every chapter, how to develop your own healing skills, because I felt like the more power you have as a patient over yourself, the less power you're likely to give away um, to someone who's exploitative. So that is um, <laughs> how you find a good practitioner. It's sort of word of mouth, unfortunately, because there is no licensure. Um, and then look out for red flags. Look out for anyone who is developing a bit of a cult. If you've seen the Bikram documentary on Netflix, um, you can see that he was a man of considerable talent. He is a man of considerable talent whose ego and narcissism um, blindsided him and blinded him to the effect of what he was doing. And he was extremely exploitative. That is what you're trying to avoid. And I tell all my patients, you have total power of your own uh, energy field. You have complete autonomy in your body. So don't let anyone take that power away from you. Yeah, that's a good point. And when you talk about um, the Bikram, there's also the same stuff that's going on with Yogi Bhajan with the Kundalini Yoga. Um, so it's unfortunate that that exploitation is going on. But um, I do digress, but going back to energy medicine, I mean, there is a form of energy medicine that where you can receive a certificate. I guess that's a Reiki healing. And yes. is, is that similar to what you do when you practice energy medicine? 
I think I do something different, but um, here's, uh, there, are, there are different ways of generating this um, energy. But one of the things um, you asked me, and I didn't answer because I was busy talking about charlatans, is, um, you know, um, how can it be measured? And what's interesting is you can measure the effect we have on each other. Um, not special healers yet, just the effect we have on each other. So for instance, at the University of Connecticut, they put two separate people in two separate MRIs in different rooms. And when one put healing thoughts about the other, their brainwaves synced up, which is really wow. interesting. And that is the feeling you get when you think about someone and they text you, which happens all the time, doesn't it? Um, and, and clearly we're picking things up from, from a field. I started to wonder what I was doing in my body when I was with a patient. And so I submitted my own body to science. And what they did was they put an EKG on my heart and an EEG on my brain. And when I'm with a patient, my heart and brain, the frequencies synchronize. It's called heart-brain coherence. They go at the same frequency. To do that, I slow down my brain a lot. And then the patient's heart goes at the same frequency as mine. And we think that when that leveling of frequencies happens, that's when information gets passed one person to another. And the patient's heart goes into the same frequency of, as mine, not through anything mystical, but thanks to mirror neurons. They start to mirror me. I go into a very peaceful place. I sort of align my energy, um, heart-brain synchronization, and then um, uh, the patient goes into the the same place. Now, at that point, I have energy that comes out of my hands, and that energy is measurable. The energy that comes out of Reiki practitioners' hands is measurable. They, they do it a different way. Um, they're not doing heart-brain coherence, but they are doing it a different way. There was a study in Japan in 1992 that looked at Qigong masters, who are very highly trained um, energy workers. They have gone through a very formal training in Asia, and they had frequencies that came out of their hands that were a thousand times strong as the strongest frequencies in the body, which are normally the heart. Um, and they were measurable. And what's more, they were a very low frequency. And I noticed that in the study because at the best orthopedic hospitals these days, they put electricity through broken bone um, and it's the same frequency. It's a very low frequency, seems to heal um, uh, bone and soft tissue. And uh, as I said in the book, I had a patient who um, broke both his legs skiing and I would visit him at home and just do energy work and his legs would shake and shake and he got better really, really, really quickly. He surprised his doctors. Um, given his age, how quickly he got better. And so I started to delve into what is that frequency. And then I found that at Columbia University, they'd done research into putting electric, low frequency electric current to heal bone. And I put it to you that the Qigong masters are generating that with their hands um, because wow. it's the same frequency. Now, are you able to modulate the frequency of energy that's transmitting from your hands and body? I can't. <laughs> I think some people probably can. I am a little, um, uh, I, I, it doesn't take much talent to do what I do. I just line up and let go. You know, I, I, I line up my heart, my brain, I breathe, I slow my brain down and I let go. And I, I'm not very technical <laughs> when it comes to what, you know, it just kind of comes through me rather than from me. And actually I explain this in the book. Anytime I try to control it with my own ego, it gets less to the point where the patient can feel it. Even if I'm trying to be nice, you know, even if I treat a lot of fertility patients, 
patients. My first book was called Making Babies. And if I hold my hands over someone and think, please let this nice woman have a baby, it goes. It goes immediately because I am then controlling it with my ego, not letting it go through me. I'm blocking it. In, in fact, I'm making it smaller, even though I'm trying to be kind. <laughs> Hey, Dr. Diva here. Thank you to all my listeners who supported my book and helped to make it a huge success. You all have helped us hit number one in Barnes & Noble, number one in oncology, cancer, healing, and medical eBooks, and number 21 in all of the Kindle store. You've also helped us hit number three on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. If you haven't received your copy, you can find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or booksatmillion.com. Visit from doctortopatient.com to become part of our growing community of health and wellness aficionados and to learn more. If you like our book and podcast, please go to amazon.com to write a five-star review and go to Apple Podcasts to also write a five-star review on this podcast or any of our episodes that you've enjoyed. We need reviews to attract and secure top-notch guests for this show. Thank you so much for your support. It's interesting because over the last, I would say, six months or so, like I've experienced energy healing from both sides. Like I've had someone place their hands over me and I could feel the energy being transmitted and, you know, actually transform my emotional state from, from bad to good. And then recently, like I've started to develop a lot of these um, sensations in my hands. And I, I honestly, it was funny because... I thought it was neuropathic pain, you know, because it was this tingling and burning sensation. And it would be something that would just go on and off in specific instances. And mostly when you were just saying, when my mind is blank. And so it was then when I would be able to perceive these energy sensations in my hands. And, um, you know, I'm very familiar with, with the chakra system. And, you know, those are just pockets of energy centers up and down our bodies. And recently I had an experience where I actually took some medicine and uh, actually recently started uh, a ketamine clinic. And ketamine is a fascinating medicine and helps people in so many different ways. And we're using it in instances of uh, treatment-resistant depression. And I wanted to understand what that patient was going through. So I went ahead and had it done on me. And as I was coming out of the experience, my entire body turned into this electromagnetic field. And I just felt enormous amounts of energy throughout, not only in my hands, but in my entire body from head to toe. And it was interesting because I'd never felt that sensation before. And I would assume what happened was, was that during the ketamine session, my vibrational frequency increased. Because that's what energy is. I mean, energy consolidates into matter, and you know when you reverse that process, it goes into energy. So I assumed that during the session, that it, that's what happened. I was I was raising my vibrational frequency, and I just turned into this this energy field. And we placed this this crystal pendant, this quartz pendant, over my body, and that typically can measure in a very very rudimentary way of energy, and and it was spinning so rapidly all over my body, confirming that there was so much energy that was coming out of me. And so it's interesting because I, I, I personally did not, you talked to me about this years ago, three years ago, I would have been like, no, that's woo woo. That doesn't make any sense. But now I truly believe in this and there is science behind it. And, 
And it's, it's just fascinating how it really works and how you can apply it to heal people. Well, speaking of science behind it, there is a really interesting study in my book um, that happened at City University in New York. There was a professor called Dr. Bill Bengston, and he learned an energy medicine technique um, from a, a sort of quite mercurial a psychic healer, the sort of person you would be quite scared of in some ways. Um, and um, he took it into the lab, and he got mice that were specially bred to have cancer, poor mice. Um, and those mice always die on day 27. They are bred genetically to be very predisposed to have cancer. They're given cancer, in this case, breast cancer, and they die in the lab on day 27. And that's how pharmaceutical companies test their anti-cancer drugs. If, they, if you can keep them to day 30, you've got some possibility and things like that. So Bill took these mice and did the technique that he had learned, and they all um, survived. They all survived, which is unheard of in these particular type of lab mice. And what's more, when they re-injected them with breast cancer, they could no longer get it. Their immune systems had been changed. And so Bill did what any scientist would do. He's quite skeptical. He, he asked if this was replicable because science needs to build. We all have to build on each other. Yeah? There's no point in having a special someone in a lab somewhere <laughs> doing something that nobody else can repeat. Um, and so he got a, a, a cohort of skeptics students and colleagues together. He taught them all the technique and it turned out that they could all do it. They could all reverse the cancer in the mice, um, wow. uh, regardless of whether they believed in it, didn't believe in it. Um, they learned the technique. And I mention it because you mentioned getting your head out of the way. It is a technique to distract the ego. That's all it is. And Bill very kindly let me put it in the book. Um, and he does teach it in a class. It takes him six weeks to teach the students in the lab to do it properly, but it's quite simple. You have to practice, but it's quite simple. And it's a way of distracting your ego. I just let my mind go blank. Um, but whereas his, his is about flashing ego, distracting images very fast. Um, but either way, it's, it's getting you as in your um, sense of separate self out of the way so that you can be your non-dual self in consciousness. Which brings me to your ketamine, because of course, shaman and traditional healers have used plant medicine to expand consciousness for thousands of years. And I think ketamine, I have a few patients who are doing ketamine at the moment for addictions and, and um, recalcitrant depression long-term, and it appears to expand consciousness a, a, a little bit in the same way. And I think you get a sense of your non-dual self um, from it. It affects the brain in a way that um, you, you begin to understand that there is a level at which we are all one um, uh, and that our individuated aspects are just aspects of us, but our consciousness is bigger than that and very connected. And I think that's what ketamine is giving people. And it's in my patients, when I talk to them, it appears to give them some context for their lives they didn't have before, some perspective that is higher or um, uh, greater than it was when they were deeply in pain. That's fairly true. I mean, yeah. And then when I, when I had the ketamine introduced to me um, in this therapeutic way, it was more of me to try to see what the patients were going through, but I doubled the more therapeutic dose. So I, I definitely got that oneness sensation and that expansion of consciousness and and I felt it. it it was you know 15 to 20 minutes and and I have a lot of experience in psychedelics in, in itself so this was interesting because it ketamine is fascinating because it can be worked as a antidepressant in small doses and then in in moderate doses it can be used as a psychedelic and in large doses it's used as an anesthetic 
So it's it's just an amazing molecule, and I'm fascinated by it. And results, I mean, I've used psychedelics in the past, but nothing has has given me that type of energy sensation. And so I, it's just a testament that my vibrational frequency was was raised and my consciousness was expanded. And that's how I felt all this. So I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm curious now. It's like, all right, so how do I use my hands to heal? So that's my, we can have a conversation offline about that. But you have a lot of interesting stories that you've documented in your, in your book about how you've healed people. I'd love to uh, share that with uh, some of the listeners so, that's, so that we can have an understanding of how powerful energy medicine is. Well, for the most part, I like to tell other people's stories because one of the things I am a, a clinician and I spend a lot of time with patients, but you know, when we talked about charlatans, I am very keen not to be anyone's guru. <laughs> I am flawed in my own way. I am the wounded healer in so many ways. And so I am, um, uh, you know, and in some ways I'm just a baby uh, at this. So I think I'm going to actually tell you a story that isn't about me, but is about self-healing in a way that I think is amazing. Um, towards the end of my book, I interviewed a young man called Madhu Anziani. And Madhu fell out of his dorm room window when he was in college and he broke his neck. And he was paralyzed from the neck down. He was tetraplegic. And he was in a coma for a long time. He had surgery at UCSF. His parents flew in from New York. And he was told when he came around that he would never walk again. And Madhu lay in his bed. And he was only 23 at the time. And he told me, Jill, I knew I wasn't stupid. I knew I'd probably end up in a wheelchair. But I tried not to let that thought permeate my being in any significant way. And I decided to live in joy. And that's a direct quote. And I remember thinking what extraordinary presence of mind that took for someone of 23 to think like that. Um, so he lay in his bed and he made noises and he could feel the noises in the vibration of the noises in his body, the body he could no longer feel. It was actually quite hard to make noises because as you know, when you're tetraplegic, your diaphragm isn't elevated, so it doesn't move very well. But he was encouraged to continue because he was smart enough to realize that if he could feel vibration, he had some spinal cord left, which he did. His spinal cord was 99% severed. So he had a tiny bit. Um, and so he started to sing in tones. People came in and talked him mantras. Someone brought a Tibetan prayer wheel and his dad used to lift him up and, and hold his hand and help him move the prayer wheel. And at one point, a nurse said to him, Madhu, um, you need to focus on being the best tetraplegic you can be, not, you know, all this false hope, which I think was quite well-meaning. But he told her, I am going to walk out of here. And he did. Three months after being wow. admitted to UCSF, he walked out on a walker. He told me a year later, he was able to get on a plane and go and visit his family in New York, as he put it, like a normal person. And he is now a sound healer, as you can probably imagine. Oh, really? And what I like <laughs> about this story is that there is no guru. Yeah, um, Madhu um, had a lovely Reiki master who came to visit him. His family were deeply supportive, but he also had really great surgeons, really good nursing, really good physical therapy. This is UCSF, a very, very good, competent hospital. Um, and he had his own belief and his own ability to control his beliefs, which, you know, as you know, I think of as part of your energy field, and um, vibration, which is a form of chi. It is a form of energy. It's just, you know, it's a frequency. And and um, all of that healed him. 
It wasn't one thing. And I think we're very tempted to look for the magic bullet or the, the one thing. And it, you know, my experience, and I've done my job for 25 years and I've treated thousands and thousands of patients is that it's a bit of a group effort <laughs> for the most part. There are little pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. And as practitioners, our job is to help people put the jigsaw puzzle together and make sure that they keep the power in their own hands because being disempowered um, uh, is not healthy. Uh, at, at all. So that is actually one of the stories from my book. It doesn't have much, it doesn't have anything to do with me except I listened to Madhu's story. Um, but in my own practice, I have seen extraordinary results and I have seen people heal in extraordinary ways, um, uh, which makes me believe, not in me <laughs> necessarily, but in the body's capacity to, to restore heal. balance and my ability with experience to provide prompts to help that happen. Various prompts. At the moment, I'm doing my job on on Zoom and people are getting better without. Oh, wow. Yes, because I can provide prompts during guided meditation, my understanding of anatomy and physiology is enough that I can lead people on journeys through their bodies and provide prompts in a, in a different way. And that's, that's what I, how I'm spending my days. So you don't necessarily have to be present in the same room where you apply your hands on, on the patient. You can do this through, I guess, transmitting energy through your Zoom calls. Um, you can use you can use vibration. You can start to create it in the patient using their mind. So I'm not really transmitting energy through the ether. Although oh, I, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, think of those University of Connecticut studies. At some point, we are all one. And one of the the studies I love in my book is at Princeton University in the engineering department, which I imagine is literally the least woo department of Princeton. Don't you? They, they, <laughs> they are very concrete in their view of the world and mechanistic. They had a grad student, a female grad student, who wondered if she could make a machine that could be moved by the human mind. And um, the uh, dean of engineering, a man called Dr. Robert Shan, who I spoke to for this book, didn't think for a moment she'd be able to pull this off, but he thought it was a nice grad school project to think it through. Like, how would you create a machine that can be moved with the human mind? Well, she did pull it off. She created a machine which, thanks to decaying atomic material, just spits out random numbers. And what she found is that when um, people focus on it with feeling, the numbers become less random. When lots of people focus on it with the same feeling, the, the numbers become less random in a way that is statistically impossible. And they have, um, this research was done for 20 years at Princeton, uh, and then it's been handed over to a, a, a private organization, a nonprofit called the Global Consciousness Project, who are carrying it on. And they've taken these little portable random event generators, they're called, everywhere, the Trump inaugural yoga retreats. And what they found is that um, love and compassion, shared love and compassion, have the most profound effect on the machine. Um, but shared fear and cruelty also has an effect and it spreads like a virus. So we are connected at some level and we are affecting our reality. If you can affect a machine, a physical mechanical machine, then you can affect other aspects of reality by your group think and your group feel. And so we are in some ways changing our future based on how we feel, particularly when we feel in groups. And I think that's particularly important to say 
the moment because fear is a very contractive energy and love is a very expansive energy. And we're seeing my own country, Britain and America, where I live, um, become increasingly fearful and isolationist and contracted on the world stage. Um, and, um, you know, we're, we're seeing fear spread like a virus. It's very toxic. Um, and it affects the next step in our future, in fact, if it can affect the machine. And so I think that those studies at Princeton were incredibly profound when it comes to this idea that at some level we are operating as one, as one consciousness. And, and I truly believe in that, um, the whole aspect of the oneness and that we're all connected. And I, I talk about this in my book that I write, in, 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 and I've also talked about this on previous podcast shows, but the power of positivity is truly unique and powerful and and at the same the corollary is also true the power of negativity is is just as strong but how we convey our thoughts and how we express our thoughts to ourselves has an impact on others around us and um, i'm sure you're familiar with this but it's sort of like the concept of the oneness but they did this experiment i think it's called a twin photon experiment it was done in 1997 and it's where they actually took a photon and they split it into two and they moved one photon seven miles north from where they started and then the other photon seven miles south from where they started. And I think there was a sep- obviously a separation of 14 miles. They applied a magnetic field to one photon. And wouldn't you know it? I mean, logically, it says that there would not be any impact on the other photon that was split. But in fact, it actually happened. They applied this magnetic energy and then the photon where the energy was applied to was spinning. And simultaneously, the photon that was 14 miles away was also spinning. And so that was faster than the speed of light. So that shows you that there's you know, matter and energy that we're all connected in some way. Yes, it's, uh, uh, photons are particularly interesting to me, actually, because we have light in every cell, biophotons. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, cancer cells lose their light, um, uh, which I think is uh, important um, more important than we've we've understood um, uh, because our biophotons get neglected. And at the end of my book, I tell a story. I was in Japan for several weeks, like six or seven weeks, and I met some amazing healers. But I met a monk called Hiroyuki Abe, who was an extraordinary healer. And I have to tell you as an aside, I, I, I wanted to know if he was worth me going to see. Not because I, I love Japan, but it was a long trip and I'm busy and I'm writing a book. So I asked, um, San Francisco State had done research into him and I asked them um, to introduce me to a patient. And I talked to a man called Yuval Oded in Israel, who is a psychologist, a research psychologist. And Yuval told me that he had had a baby who was born blind. And uh, out of desperation, they, he and his wife had taken this baby to meet with Hiroyuki Abe. And that to start with, nothing much happened. And Yuval, who is a research psychologist and a scientist, began to feel kind of silly that he'd gone on this wild goose chase. Um, and then after, uh, I think on the fifth day, they wheeled the baby out and he screwed up his eyes and they realized he could see. And um, when I talked to Yuval, the little boy was four and he could still see. Um, so I got on a plane and I went to see Hiroyuki Abe, who was 
was um, just a joy, an absolute joy, and who still teaches me to this day every wow. week on Zoom. He teaches me to distance heal. Um, but um, he, um, I watched him in his clinic, and he was surrounded by students. Uh, he's kind of a big deal in his field in Japan. And he asked me, would you like to have your chakras opened? And I, being a Westerner, was like, sure. <laughs> you know, I've lived in California. I was like, yes, open my chakras. I took it way too lightly. <laughs> and I sat down and I realized, oh, oh, I can feel him. Like he was, he was, I, I was sitting in a chair, but I could feel inside my body things changing. Wow. And um, I have video of this. And you can see that I'm, uh, I have my eyes closed, but I start to look really startled because this is not your, uh, you know, low level chakra opening at all. And it took him several minutes, but when he finished, I opened my eyes and I was in a classroom full of his students and I could, all I could see was the light emanating from them for um, the wow. longest time and then it dissipated. But um, it changed the way I see human beings forever. I never quite went back to seeing the world the same way again. It accelerated my healing abilities extraordinarily. He like moved blocks in me. Um, and when I came home, the patients, my, my regular patients were like, what happened to you? And I was like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's a long story. I'm gonna write it in my book, but it was a monk. And, uh, and chakras and light. Um, but I think uh, light is a very important part of, you know, the way we emit light um, uh, is a very important part of our um, uh, connection and um, that gets underrated. Right. That's fascinating. Well, for our listeners today, interested in trying to contact you or learn more about your books, what's the best way of doing so? Well, you can buy Energy Medicine, The Science and Mystery of Healing anywhere, any good bookstore or online. Support your indie bookstore if you can. <laughs> Otherwise, we won't have them and that'll be really sad and we'll all be sad. Um, uh, it's published by HarperCollins. Um, it's in hardback and um, you can buy it anywhere. You can find me in my clinic where I'm supposed to be looking after people, <laughs> <laughs> just like a, a normal practitioner, in fact, when I'm not writing books, um, at yanovacenter.com. That's Y-I-N-O-V-A center the American way. I say that because my dad in England still can't find my website because he spells center the English way. <laughs> um, Unovacenter.com. And um, there are over 20 acupuncturists at the Unova Center. They're all phenomenal. They're all Chinese herbalists. So you can see any of us, but you can book with me online at the moment. I haven't done that for a while, but I'm stuck at home like a lot of people. And I thought I may as well, you know, just help people. Um, so, <laughs> and look outward rather than feel sad that I'm on lockdown. So I am um, sitting at home um, and happy to chat with people on Zoom and help them troubleshoot their health problems. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me and for having such an interesting chat.